Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of NBN's Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Geert, and with us today is Professor Alison Ritter to discuss her book, Drug Policy, just published with Radledge. The ink is barely dry, I believe. Um, Just briefly, Professor Ritter is an internationally recognized drug policy scholar and the director of the the Drug Policy Modeling Program at the University of New South Wales. She is also a senior research fellow leading a multidisciplinary program of research on drug policy. And she worked as a clinical psychologist in the alcohol and drug treatment sector prior to commencing full-time research. Furthermore, she's past president of the International Society for the Study of Drug Policy, and currently she's an editor-in-chief for the International Journal of Drug Policy. It's quite the list. Welcome, Professor. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you very much for having me. Let's uh, start start right uh, right here. Alison, what did you aim for writing the book uh, Drug Policy? Is there a particular problem that you thought about solving Uh, There are many problems in relation to drugs and drug policy globally. Um, The the main motivation for the book really was to try and bring together four different theoretical perspectives that are used and to try and put them all together in one place and, in a sense, to begin the opportunity for these perspectives to speak to each other. Um, and, and those, just briefly, those four perspectives are evidence-based policy, a, a popular position that our drug policy should be evidence-based. The second is policy process theories. So this is how policy gets made. That comes from a different tradition that comes from public administration and public policy. The third is democratic theory. And the fourth is post-structural policy analysis. And so really the motivation for the book was to, was to try and be able to position something like post-structural policy analysis alongside um, evidence-based policy, alongside democratic theory, alongside policy process theories. And to do that in such a way that it's accessible um, and um, and in a sense, it's the start of a conversation rather the end, rather than the end of a conversation. Um, it, if if well, I, I was reading, and yeah, the the four perspectives come come to the fore very clearly. Um, uh, at the same time, there's it's it's it's. Uh, in, surveys like a, a wide range of empirical and theoretical research so uh, to me it also was a bit of an introduction into the the field of drug policy analysis um, when, when I 
write summaries or introductions or if I write syntheses of, of academic texts, um, sometimes it does lead to, to like personal new syntheses of knowledge, you know? Did, were there any, um, any things, any facts or any patterns that struck you particularly when you, when you wrote the book or when you finished it? Um, I, I, these, these are themes or theoretical perspectives that I've been working with for many years. And in a sense, the book is a, is a synthesis of both um, my own work, the work of my team, plus work of colleagues across, across the globe. Um, and it certainly is, a, is global in, in terms of its content. Um, so I guess I, I guess there's not something that surprised me um, in the, in the process of writing it, or or something new that emerged from writing it. I do know what I want to work on next, though. If that's partly an answer to yeah, yeah, um, yeah definitely the, tell us please. Question. So uh, um, I want to do more on values and ethics. Um, I think I think we haven't paid enough attention to that. I've I've done some initial um, preliminary, whoops, you know, some empirical work. Um, I know there are people in the UK um, and in other places who are interested in looking at val- the role of values um, in relation to drug policy. So I'm very keen to pursue more along that line. I see. And who who exactly uh, is the audience that you wrote the book for? Like, whom in the field of policy would you like to uh, hand it out to first? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, I, I think it is a, it is a it is a, an overview and an introduction, um, and in that sense, I'm speaking to um, people who are beginning to study drug policy and people who are already studying and engaged in drug policy. One of my career missions is to make everybody a drug policy scholar um, and to attract people to the field, to in, to attract undergraduates and postgraduates because we need the next generation of people to help solve these complex problems. Um, so I would hope that students of criminology, of sociology, of law, of public health um, pick this up and think, wow, I could... I could do some work in relation to drug policy. So that's, in a sense, I guess, one of the audiences. But governments are also an audience. I mean, governments have an enormous responsibility and burden to try and get this right. And and more often than not, they don't get it right. Um, And I I would hope that... um, people in the public service and and bureaucracies um, read it and perhaps think more purposefully about the goals of drug policy and what they're doing and what the impacts of those choices have in people's lives. That's interesting that uh, that governments don't get this right. I mean, isn't it that the public servants, so to say, are drug policy? Or our policy. So I don't quite understand the point. The um, 
you say that uh, quite often the public servants and governments don't get uh, drug policy right, um, perhaps how policy is made, um, but isn't are, aren't they the primary actors? So uh, how might it work that they don't get it right what they are doing? Oh, <laughs> you're asking me about why drug policy has failed. <laughs> no, the, no, it's more how how governments themselves don't don't understand or don't sufficiently understand the policy setting process, the cycle. Oh, I mean, I think they understand the process. Their problem is the content. Sorry, but yes, of course, um, they understand perfectly well how decisions get made, and they understand the role of evidence, extremely limited, um, the role of um, ideology, extremely high, um, and the electoral cycle and the windows of opportunity, they understand all of that. Um, the, the, the challenge is for them to have a goal around what to do about drugs that they can um, successfully implement in the context of understanding those processes. So the, so the problem for academics is that many academics don't understand the process of policymaking. They see it as a simple, linear, we generate empirical evidence, we give it to a decision maker and a decision maker chooses the policy that's based on evidence. Um, and the academic's job is to generate evidence um, and translate it. Um, you know, that, that's, that's not how policy gets made um, at all. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of text about that in, in the book. Um, so the policymakers understand how policy gets made, but what they're missing is the content of drugs and, and, and choosing a goal so one of the excuse me one of the real challenges I think is deciding whether you're interested in reducing the harms from drugs or in reducing drug use per se. Now that they're not mutually exclusive. Clearly, if you don't use drugs, you're not going to experience harm. But the policy settings around reducing harm are very different from the policy settings around reducing drug use. And um, the, the, the lack of establishing a clear goal by decision makers, I think, then creates the opportunity for poor policy, basically. Is there... You... you... So you've already mentioned these these potential policy goals that if mm. they are set clearly, that might advance uh, good policy. Mm. Um, how does that relate to these governing images that you that you discuss in the book? Um, yes. You discuss. Oh, sorry. No, no, go. That was my question, basically. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, so the, the the governing images very much align with the different goals. So, um, you know, if the if the governing image is one of um, deviance, so drug use is 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 deviant, it's abnormal, it's criminal as the kind of governing image of drug use, 
then the goals will be um, to eliminate drug use um, and the mechanisms will be a strong focus on law enforcement, prohibition, and so the, the, the kind of strategies that would be employed. So those, the sort of the governing image, the goals and the strategies kind of hang together, if you like. If, on the other hand, the, um, the governing image is one of, um, the, the, of ill health, that, that drug use is associated inevitably with drug dependence or addiction and ill health, and these people who use drugs become patients in the health system, um, then, then the, the policy goal is treatment um, and is health um, you know, reducing the harms, the health harms, um, and then the strategies become, you know, treatment and, um, yeah, medications and and all of those sorts of things. So they they can all they they can all sit together, but sometimes it's hard to surface the governing images. Um, usually the the strategies are pretty explicit. And to be honest, sometimes it's hard to surface the goals um, of what um, what's trying to be achieved. Um, many countries do have sort of national strategic frameworks, so there are formal documents that, that say, you know, this is what this country does in relation to drugs, this is what our, our goals are. But then there's the issue of the difference between the policy rhetoric and what actually happens on the ground. Um, and how how policy actions are actually, you know, played out. Um, so you can have good rhetoric but poor implementation. Do, do you maybe have a good example of that disjunction between the rhetoric and the, yeah. the, the governing image, so to say? So, so, so Australia is an example. Um, our, our national drug strategy... Um, has the goal of harm minimisation um, to minimise harms um, and it's an attempt to have a balanced um, approach which occurs in many other countries, Switzerland, Canada, etc., where you balance law enforcement, prevention, treatment and harm reduction. Um, so, so it's very focused on minimising harms with four pillars um, of activity that are balanced. The document talks about getting the balance right. In reality, it, in, on the ground, Australia has a really strong law enforcement approach. Um, people, um, the investment in um, policing is substantially higher. It's like 60 70% of the drug budget compared to treatment and harm reduction. So there's no balance in the investment. Um, and in terms of the actions in law, you know, one can be sentenced to quite long imprisonment for drug use in Australia. Um, so even though the interest is harm minim minimising the harms, the actual focus on the ground is, is much more about punishing people who use drugs. Yeah, makes sense. That's interesting because, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I mean, in, in Australia, you say that the practice is mostly law enforcement focused, but the rhetoric is about balance. Um, but I do, I do feel that at least 
historically the the governing image behind the international drug treaties, for instance, and still the rhetoric in many places is focused on law enforcement and prohibition, perhaps. Um, what do you, why do you think this, because you, you cite uh, in, in many ways that, that uh, lots of these prohibition um, practices are, are not really effective. Why do you think this is so persistent? Uh, I, I think there are a lot of reasons um, and, and different kinds of different kinds of reasons. I mean, sort of first up, historically, the establishment of the international treaties, and there are there are fantastic scholars who have written about this, who I who I cite um, in, in the book. You know, historically, the 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 treaties were were really arguably about race and power not about drugs um, and not that, that not starting with the idea that oh we've got a problem with drugs with the harms from drugs what do we need to do about it I mean it wasn't a wasn't a policy process that that started with identifying what the problem is um, so so the establishment of the of the treaties and the sort of Prohibition era actually had not much to do with drugs per se, and then you get you get stuck. I mean, it's very hard to change these international regimes, and despite really strong advocacy from civil society and from experts, um, it, it's an incredibly slow grinding process to try and change the treaty system. There is a glimmer of hope last year. The UN agencies um, put out a joint statement in support of the decriminalisation of personal use of drugs um, and the, the preference to treat drug use as a health and social issue rather than a criminal justice issue. Um, but they're, they're not, they're, you know, they're not going to change the, the treaties. So it's got a long so prohibition and the the treaties have got a got a very long history, um, and so they're very stuck in that sense. Another reason I think is that people are afraid. Um, pe- um, people who use drugs experience a lot of stigma um, and are marginalised in all sorts of ways a- across, or you know, globally. In different in different ways and in different um, cultures, um, and I think that there is a fear that liberalisation will um, result in harm and damage to people's children, um, and and I I'm not dismissive of that fear, um, and I think the assumption if if there is a risk associated with um, doing something. Um, Parents, governments want to manage that risk and um, hence the idea that the best way to do that is to prevent use. Now, that's where the problem comes um, because there are other ways of reducing risk. If you take the example of seatbelts in cars to, I mean, here the the risk is a fatal or non-fatal car accident um, the solution was not to stop driving. 
um, the solution was to install seatbelts and Australia and most other countries saw a dramatic reduction in the road toll as a result of the introduction of seatbelts. This is a classic risk management, harm reduction strategy. Um, with drugs, the equivalent is not to say, well, let's not drive the car, let's not use drugs. Let's work out a way of reducing the risks. Because most people use drugs without experiencing harm. That's the thing I think that a lot of people don't quite get. Um, so it's not inherently harmful to consume a drug. Um, and not everybody experiences harm. Yeah, I guess there might be an, an unpopular opinion, in, especially in policy circles. Yeah, although, I mean, it's interesting. It, it is... You know, it is changing. I mean, obviously, cannabis is now legalised in many um, states in the US and many in Uruguay and Canada, um, New Zealand, although the referendum failed, it'll probably get up next time. Um, so, you know, there's that policy activity which is really shifting the governing images of cannabis and the way in which cannabis is seen and the role that cannabis or marijuana plays the other thing that's happening is there's a lot of work on psychedelic drugs and their role in improving mental health. So psilocybin, ecstasy, MDMA, um, psilocybin is mushrooms, um, and, and other, other psychedelic preparations, which I think is really shifting our idea. And, and in fact, the whole idea that drugs are harmful and risky um, sort of runs in the face of the, the consumption of alcohol, um, which we seem to be able to acknowledge is risky for some people and not for others. We manage the risks for those people that experience harms. Um, so we seem to be able to hold that notion about the drug alcohol, but for some reason we can't hold that notion about cocaine or amphetamines um, or heroin. Um, and yet it, the, the same principle is true. There, there are a few examples of countries that have taken a kind of um, an extraordinary position um, on when it comes to a, a drug policy and a different take. You cite Portugal in several places, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, what, what is it about the their... I don't know, their, their policy landscape that allowed for yeah. such uh, an, an, an unorthodox take, so to say. Yeah, look, I mean, every country is different and every country is its own case, its own case example. In Portugal, um, there were significantly escalating drug-related deaths um, there was a lot of um, concern about sort of poverty and social conditions. Um, There's a very public um, drug injecting scene. Um, and um, the then decision makers decided that they did need radical reform. This is in 2000, 2001, and 
introduced, you know, famously introduced the removal of criminal penalties for all drug use. What's important about what happened in Portugal was that they didn't just do that. They actually invested hugely in treatment and they established these dissuasion commissions. So it wasn't like um, anyone could just use drugs. They were, if, the, if, if they were found using drugs, if they are found using drugs, they are, they, an appointment is made with the commission of dissuasion and they're given an assessment and education and information to reduce the risks. So it's not it's not a free for all, and it, you know, and and importantly, the decriminalisation of personal use was associated with this enormous investment and infrastructure in in assessment and education and treatment. And of course, it's been it's been incredibly successful. Um, when you talk with the people from Portugal. Um, they say they were driven by evidence. Um, they were driven by a commitment to reduce harms, um, and and their context was such that, you know, the the country was in trouble at that point in time. Whereas if you look at the United States and cannabis, um, that was driven by opinion through ballot initiatives. Um, that this is the legalisation of cannabis, which is a different example, and by a concern for government revenue. Um, so a lot of the debates about legalising cannabis were associated with the economic benefit, nothing to do with, you know, cannabis being a safe drug or people, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so so there the argument swung on the economy um, I mean, there are other arguments as well. And if you look at Uruguay, it had nothing to do with pu- public opinion. So cannabis in the US was mainly ballot initiative, so all about public opinion. In Uruguay, most of the people don't didn't want cannabis legalisation. It wasn't popular. But the decision makers saw the nexus between the cannabis market and the rest of the illicit drug market and the amount of violence, the violence in the drug market, which was quite extreme, obviously South America, and they wanted to break that nexus. So the solution to breaking the nexus between the cannabis market and the violent illicit drug market was to legalise cannabis. So So just those three examples, I think, show that, Every country is is different and has its own context, um, and change is initiated sometimes for reasons that sit outside drug policy. I do jump ahead a bit. I think to the to one of your later chapters, um, you already. Well, you, you gave several country examples, and this I always find this fascinating take on, on, on policy analysis when it comes to a comparison between uh, between different countries, uh, because it, to me it seems like like a daunting endeavor to to uh, compare objects mm-hmm. as complex um, 
as 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 different countries and 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 their their own policies. Um, what just in in big lines, what is a comparative policy analysis, and why do you think it 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 might work? <laughs> um, comparative policy analysis is trying to compare two different policy regimes um, holding everything else equal um, and trying to eliminate, you know, other difference. Uh, the reason why it's really important um, is because evidence does matter and there are it provides the opportunity to really try really generate evidence about different policy regimes if if you don't have comparative policy analysis what you're left with is modeling exercises or theoretical exercises about if then and i and they're just not they're just not as powerful as you alluded to it's very hard to do it's really hard to do well and um, one needs to be very careful um, in taking context into account. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. Let, let's see. So you, you also mentioned the, the policy modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have maybe a, because you say that it's in, in a certain sense, it's maybe um, less uh less less grounded than than uh, the 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 comparative policy analysis um, mm-hmm. do you maybe have a, a success story of a, of, of a good example of policy modeling or maybe a failure so <laughs> <laughs> um, so one example of this, this is some modelling work that we've done, um, is in relation to um, methadone maintenance treatment, providing people who are opioid dependent with a medication. Um, one of the key questions is whether, so the majority of people who inject drugs and who are in receipt of treatment for that are hepatitis C positive. Um and there's generally a view that we can now treat or we can now treat hepatitis C very successfully, but there's been a worry about reinfection. So the argument has been that if this is, this is before the new hepatitis C treatment, so maybe this is not the best example now that I think about it. Anyway, policymakers have said basically if someone continues injecting drugs, we're not going to provide them with hepatitis C treatment because there's no point. Um, they're just going to get reinfected and we're going to waste a precious medication resource. Um, we did some modelling work that showed that it would be better to invest in treating people who were not who were continuing to inject illicitly as opposed to treating people who were already in methadone maintenance treatment um, and that that would have a bigger that would that showed a bigger effect on cost and prevalence of hepatitis C um, 
So, in fact, the policymakers, instead of treating the people, instead of treating the hepatitis C for people who were already in drug treatment and not injecting, which sort of, they, that's what they were doing, they shifted to actually rolling out the hepatitis C treatment among the people who were currently injecting because there was a better, the models showed that there was better effectiveness um, overall. Um, so it's kind of a counterintuitive finding from the modelling. Um, but actually when you think it through, of course you want to treat the people who are actively injecting because they're the ones that are engaged in risk behaviour and spreading hepatitis C. Um, so it kind of makes sense. So the model kind of provided the, the you know, data, hypothetical data, to support a transition to a different um, policy for hepatitis C treatment. It's interesting about modelling, though, because I think um, COVID has given modelling a whole new sensibility. I mean, I think it, people now understand what it is, like the taxi driver and the layperson. Um, they also understand the imprecision at some level and the uncertainty. Um, so actually, it's going to be really interesting. We need um, some of your sociologists who are listening to start studying the ways in which modelling has become an object um, of understanding in the public's eyes and driving, obviously, a lot of the responses to COVID and what that then means for the future of modelling. I think it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, maybe learning on this topic has, uh, has uh, sped up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you also cite several challenges when it comes to, to uh, data linkage and big data analysis, mm. Um, mm. because they're, of course, they, they hold a, a lot of chances uh, as well with, uh, with a huge amount of data that's available overall. Um, mm. what, what, are, what are these problems that you, that you identify? So the, the, the frontier of so data linkage has been around for a long time. Um, within health, within public health. The, the, the new frontier is, is data linkage with big data. So it's linking up someone's health records with their supermarket shopping, with their criminal history, with their transport app, um, how they move around the city, um, with their Fitbit um, so data is everywhere and it's all of those kinds of data and now we're talking about we the promise is that um, if all of these data are connected we will be able to be um, able to provide much better in this case health interventions or social interventions when we have all of that data when we know that the 50-year-old has been to the liquor shop and purchased a lot of wine because we've got the bill and then driven the car and then gone to see his doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we could then intervene in that person's life to reduce the likelihood of, you know, 
him experiencing significant harm. And on the one hand, there are people who are very excited about this possibility of big data being able to be used for public good. But it's terrifying. I mean, just in the example that I've given, there are privacy concerns, there are, there, there, there are concerns about um, unnecessary intervention in people's lives. There are also concerns about the use of algorithms which get it wrong. So, so a lot of these, these data are then, they then generate an algorithm which is then used by a doctor to make a prediction. The algorithms are trained on you know, white middle-class people, so they get it wrong a lot of the time. So there's, and there's lots of examples of algorithms gone wrong because the data's been wrong, the input data, the training data has been wrong. So that's a taste of what big data might look like and take your Fitbit off and turn your tracker off on your phone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because it's, it's all there. <laughs> These uh, these different kinds of evidence bases, so so to say, um, when when we look at your before last chapter, it's 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 really a hopeful one. It's about um, uh, how change might take place, and I I do think well, if if I get it right, it's it's principally directed to toward researchers, um, who as you said are are in the uh, presupposition that they make evidence and then they bring it to the policy uh, makers and then policy is correctly made, but that's not the case. Uh, and, and you speak a lot about um, different kinds of translation that might might take place between the, the evidence and, and the, the, the policy side, so to say. Are there any any good practices or uh, uh, any steps that you that researchers might take to um, uh, give their, their results and their research a better valorization. Yeah, I think I think there's lots that that um, that researchers can do, and I hope that there are some really good pointers in that chapter. Um, I think one of the, I mean, there's a few key key lessons. I mean, the first is to ask the right question at the very beginning of the research. Um, if your question's not relevant to a current policy problem or you haven't engaged with a decision maker right at the beginning, you're much less likely to have have impact. I think co-design has become a buzzword, but actually it's really fundamentally important. So designing your research project with your end users as part of that. Um, and then in terms of conducting the research, translating the research, um, I think academics have sort of this might sound a bit rude and I apologise in advance, but have this sort of sense of being somehow objective and independent um, and I would challenge that. I would challenge the idea that anyone is objective and independent. We all, we all bring our worldviews and our values to whatever we do, whether it's research or clinical practice or whatever. And I think there is a role for academics to be advocates. And um, I describe in the book some of the both promise and challenge of advocacy work. 
And I think academics have been quite shy of the idea, well, we're not advocates, we're, we're just in the business of providing the evidence in a kind of passive way. But but evidence is not passive and the way in which academics provide evidence is also not passive. Um, and I think we could be braver about our values and about taking on advocacy roles as academics and where that might not be comfortable or might be institutionally problematic. The second strategy is to work with advocacy organisations. So the first organisation that gets my research results is the drug user group or the Council of Social Services, the advocacy groups that actually know exactly how to get out there and bang the drum. I mean, that's what they do, and they do it really, really well. Um, so giving them the results and letting them advocate in their voice with the messages that, that they want, I think is a really successful strategy for researchers. Yeah, it makes sense. And, well... Of course, the research cycle usually is a bit longer than the than the policy cycle, but uh, it, yeah, I guess so. it's at least it's very it's a good idea to keep one eye on the the salient uh, policy topics that are currently uh, currently that's in right. the field. I mean, the the one thing I would say that's a really important point in that chapter about making change happen, and also in the chapter on policy processes, there are these two. Two different terms used. Um, one term is knowledge broker and the other term is policy broker. And I try and explain how different these are. So a knowledge broker is someone who brokers knowledge into the policy process. So they, they take evidence and they, you know, translate that evidence for decision makers. Um, and knowledge brokers are really important. And, and some academics are just nerdy and don't know how to communicate. Um, they work well with a knowledge broker. So, so you, you can't assume, because you're a good researcher, doesn't mean that you're going to be a knowledge broker. So I advise researchers who are great researchers, who are generating great data, to work with a knowledge broker. That model of knowledge brokerage kind of fits with the evidence-informed policy paradigm and the idea that our job as researchers is to get evidence into the system and that's what a knowledge broker does. The other model that I'm working with in the book is about the dynamic policy process interactions. Um, and this is where you need what's called a policy entrepreneur or a policy broker. Their job is to match new solutions to problems and to politics, and it's a very active um, role. It's described in Kingdon's multiple streams theory um, and also in um, the Advocacy Coalition Framework, two very common policy process theories that I explore in detail in the book. Um, and here the assumption is that it's not that, that the policy broker will actively intervene to craft and shape the matching of a problem 
with a solution with the politics. That doesn't privilege the evidence-based policy paradigm. It's kind of a more, more um, it's an understanding of policy as policy making as being sort of dynamic interactions and networks of actors. So the researcher can either employ a knowledge broker or a or a policy broker, a knowledge broker, or a policy broker. Um, and the policy broker is a really active position for making change happen in a in a different way from the knowledge broker. Yeah, I hope I've explained that simply enough. <laughs> I think you did. So you you just mentioned the. Um, uh, how, how do you say that the the classical evidence based policy mm-hmm. uh, paradigm versus the more networked um, mm-hmm. um, sort of more horizontal uh, uh, policy making uh, paradigm mm-hmm. or what what policy is essentially your your last chapter is uh, is called Demo- democratizing drug policy and there you uh, there you quote Hannah Arendt stating uh, all political institutions are manifestations and materializations of power and they petrify and decay as soon as the living power of the people ceases to uphold them. And I guess this implies a, a, a third uh, a take on policy, right? Or a mm-hmm. m- yet more uh, horizontal model. Could you say a tiny bit about that? Mm. Thank you for reading the Hannah Arendt quote. It's a, it's a beautiful quote. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, what, what to say about all of this? So, so, so the success of, I mean, to, you know, to paraphrase Arendt, which obviously I can't do nearly as beautifully as she does herself, um, you know, democracy, um, thrives when there is active debate and when it is democratic and participatory. Um, and fundamentally that, that means that experts need to cede some power um, and create and there needs to be the creation of opportunities for people to have a say in what to do about drugs because that's democratic and we need we need forums and venues both formal and informal for people to have their say and i mean i've i've worked in the drugs area now for more than 30 years and everyone has a view the school teacher that i talk to the taxi driver you know people at a party i mean sometimes i don't say what i do because i'm tired of talking about drugs um because everyone has a view and that is fantastic but we need to create venues and opportunities to surface those views and to have them contribute to part of our democratic um, life and and liveliness. Um, And the reason we don't, I think, is because people like me have been scared that it will open the opportunity for vilification um, or for views to be expressed that I disagree with. Um, But I think we need to face that fear and indeed 
you know, the whole issue around the crisis in democracy, you know, I, I quote A.C. Grayling um, and his recent book on, on the crisis in democracy is precisely because of the sense that populism, right-wing populism, has taken over um, with Brexit, with Trump. Maybe we're seeing something with some of the... Um, um, you know, protests against um, vaccination. Um, and the, the solution to that is not to repress those opinions um, or to insist upon an expert-led solution. Um, the, in fact, that will only make it worse. That will, will only deepen um, the divide. Um, the solution is to, to give voice to all of these views um, in a way that is ultimately productive. And I think that is terrifying for people who have worked in drugs for a long time. But I think it is our only way forward, retreating back to experts and expert knowledge and losing, losing the, the democratic voice, I think is very... Is very very risky, um, and won't advance um, good policy um, or or the interests of the people, um, which is fundamentally what what good drug policy is about, uh, and and democratic drug policy is about representing the interests of the people. Thank you for that. Maybe, maybe because we've covered, I guess, most of the book already. Um, I, I'd, I'd be curious. Still, uh, you, you've mentioned that your your current research, uh, or you would like to steer your current research more towards um, values and ethics and how they intertwine with the, with mm. drug policy making. Are you already working on that? Uh, do you already have a project running? Are you already writing a new book, perhaps? <laughs> I have started thinking about a new book on on this issue, um, um, and I'm writing, but I need, but I'm writing a grant to get some research funding um, because um, I I. Um, I need research funding in order to pursue these agendas. So I, I need, so my next step is to convince a panel of experts that this is a worthwhile area for, uh, for further scholarship. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, so a bit in the future, but uh, let's hope that it uh, materializes and then uh, maybe we'll get the chance to talk about that as well. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about drug policy. It's been a pleasure. All right. I wish you a great day. Thank you very much.